C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the Millennial Divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Yergi. And I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And I was just about to pound on the table, even though Maddie just told me not to, for better recording. So now I'm just sitting here with my hand oddly. Now Shay is crinkling the paper into the microphone. This is going so well so far. Um, (laughs) We are joined by an esteemed guest, Jenny DeCandia. Hello. Hi. Before we kick off into our segments, if you could, just so people can learn to recognize your voice, um, if you want to give a brief introduction of kind of what you're doing with your life, maybe where you were born, how old you are, so people can place you on the millennial spectrum. Okay. Um, Hi, I'm Jenny. I'm 21 years old, so I was born in 1996, so uh, actually two weeks to my 22nd birthday. Um, and yeah, so June 3rd is my birthday, 1996, and I am Happy from- Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm from Westfield, New Jersey. I was born and raised there, and then I just graduated from NYU uh, on Thursday. With that a degree was my in next what? question. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> what is your degree in? Art history. Cool, cool. Um, so it's a degree in unemployment. I like it. Thanks. So what- <laughs> Don't say that. I don't believe in that. <laughs> Outside of the unemployment, kind of what is- the dream, like if you could have your dream job or kind of what's the next Just anything? a steady uh, paying job at a New York museum and I'm looking at education departments. That's but cool. I'm open to any way the wind blows. Very nice. Awesome. All I right. Like well, shall we jump into our Millennial Moments of the Week? Would you like to kick us off, Shay? Sure. I would love to. Um, I'm going to say two. One, just because I have a compulsion to always talk about my snacks on this show. So, as (laughs) I Snacks in your outfits. Snacks are are very important to me. Um, Because if I don't get snacks, then I get real cranky. And as listeners may not have known, in last week's episode, or the last episode you listened to, recently aired with Michael, I was very cranky because I did not have sufficient snacks. So, anyway, so today I just think my snacks are funny because. They're random things I grabbed out of the fridge. They are a yogurt, a banana, and a chocolate child's cliff bar that <laughs> was in my hiking backpack that I should have returned to my boyfriend's son because the chocolate ones are his favorite, but I ate it instead because I'm a jerk. The TLDR on that was Shay takes chocolate from small children. Yeah, exactly. So candy from babies? Yeah. <laughs> Literal candy from babies. I also um, like, just a side note before you go into your second one, um, yeah. I was talking to one of my old coworkers this week and she was telling me like she's married now and she's pregnant with her second kid and she was like I used to do this thing and I did it recently as like a throwback she calls it single white girl dinner and it's basically cheese and crackers with like turkey salami on it and she yeah. was like I used to eat that all the time because it's so easy and you don't have to cook and I was like yep I totally everyone does that you're just like I'm hungry so I'm just gonna have like some hummus maybe a carrot, and then cheese and crackers, and it's amazing. Yeah, definitely. It's the grown-up Lunchable. And it we totally all pretend is. that we're fancy with our, you know, uh, with our sh- charcuterie, but uh, we are not fancy. And 
we are eating grown-up Lunchables. I love it. So what's your second millennial moment, Shay? Oh, well, I I just wanted to tell everybody. So I've talked about here. I mean, the podcast for me has also really been a journey uh, of uh, leaving my job in New York and then leaving New York and driving across the country and moving to Oregon and doing all of this crazy stuff and trying to start my own business. And I just wanted to say, in case anybody is listening that might be interested in following me for another reason, um, I've kind of relaunched my business and I am focusing now on uh, strategic consulting for small businesses, entrepreneurs, but also just like cool people who are trying to decide what to do with their life or their career. So uh, check out my website. It's uh, shaykeats.com and there's lots of interesting things on there. There also will be interesting things on my Instagram, which is currently at uh, words, numbers, people. Um, But I also just, you know, I think we talk a lot about, you know, how millennials are kind of doing their own thing and there's this whole like, you know, work from anywhere, work from the beach and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that. So I just wanted to underscore this millennial moment by saying, like, yes, this is something that you can do, but it's really hard. And I think we just see these people like tapping away on their laptop from the beach. And that's not really kind of a realistic representation of what it means to be what they call, you know, a digital nomad. Um, So I just wanted to put that out there for everyone to cogitate on. I like that. Yeah, I definitely think you know, Shay's very humble, but she has put a lot of work into this and there's a lot of work <laughs> behind the scenes. And even we've talked about it before. Like, I'd like to get your thoughts on this too, because Jenny is also a podcaster <laughs> that people are like, I'm going to start a podcast. And then they realize that it's actually a lot of work and like coordination. Mm-hmm. And especially if you don't have access to a lot of the different, like nicer equipment and stuff, like it can be really hard and people make it seem very easy but that's just a testament to those people of how great they are if they make it look easy um and also side note i have not participated in shay's business obviously since she she just launched it and technically i'm fun employed right now so i don't have any money side note but uh shay has definitely given me a lot of great life and business advice that she definitely should be compensated for so if you have the means you should check out her service and i don't have one of the fun testimonials on her website but if anyone's interested and wants to reach out about how great Shay is, that's one of my favorite topics. So, Oh, thank you, Maddie. Um, and also for our listeners, I will offer you, since you are near and dear to my heart, I'm offering uh, through the end of August $150 off any service uh, that you see on my website. Love so me a discount. please take advantage. Yeah. Enjoy a discount. So, Great. Excellent. Um, so my millennial moment is, like I mentioned, I'm fun employed right now. Yay! Um, yes, and I know I've I alluded to it a little bit during Michael's episode and a little bit during Chris and Christian's episode because when I was in Portland was when I actually got the phone call for my next position. So as a lot of our listeners know, I used to work in financial services in kind of an accounting role, and um, you know it served me really well. I interned there in college. I worked there full time for about two years, and it was such a great experience. But it just didn't give me the lifestyle that I wanted. There was a lot of specifics to like the team that I worked on that I don't necessarily want to go into, but it just ended up turning into not the best environment. So I started looking at places and I don't want to say the exact company that I work because technically in like the contract that I signed, they said 
if I have any sort of commercial enterprise, I have to let them know, and I just don't want to deal with that um, in case this podcast turns into something that makes actual dollars. Um, but I work for a meal kit company, and it's not the one you think, um, but it is very millennial, and I'm going to be starting out on June 4th is my first day, so I have two weeks off. I'm going to Paris to visit producer Jenny, which I'm very excited about. Um, and I'm excited to work, you know, still within finance and accounting, but for a very millennial company. And I'm sure there will be a lot of stories that come out of that. Um, you know, like I said, I'm going to be starting out working in a WeWork while they get the new office together. Um, it's a much smaller team. It's only five people really in all of the finance department, you know, and I'm coming from a company of thousands of people. So I think it'll be really great. I think it definitely fits more of my skill set, but I just wanted to let the listeners know because I know I've talked a lot about my interview woes. And I also wanted to point out too, like I have a finance and accounting degree from NYU. It took me pretty much from the time I start, like June 4th, it took me about a year from the time I decided that I wanted to leave through starting the new job, which I think is a little terrifying, like looking back on it. Um, and there's definitely things I could have done better to kind of expedite that process. But at the same time, you know, people all along the way told me like, yeah, no, your skills are like totally transferable, like whatever, like people are kind of chill about it. But the real impact, and obviously my story is not indicative of everyone, but it just goes to show you that even though the economy is doing better and I have what's, you know, Jenny would prefer to maybe as not a degree in unemployment. Um, it's something that's more stereotypically represented um, in a lot of companies. It still took a lot of work and a lot of, you know, trying, and it, it definitely wasn't easy. And this was really the only place that I even had an opportunity to accept a job from. So I just wanted to point that out there for the millennials. It's definitely not hopeless if you don't get the first job that you really fell in love with. And stick with it because it might take you a year or multiple years to find something that really you like. So that's my spiel. Yeah. And just to add on to that, which is a soapbox, and I, I feel like we're, this is a very good conversation with young Jenny here. Um, by the way, it's amazing how many guests we've had whose name is our names are Jenny. Names are Jenny. Yeah. Um, that's because it's the sorority, so, oh, you know, <laughs> sorority name. Yeah. Uh, but and all your moms kids. got pregnant at the same time. Yeah, yeah there were a lot of Rosses and Rachels in my high school. So, you know, <laughs> no that's way. the 90s for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but I think we think that we have to have the path figured out when you kind of go for that first job. And that is patently untrue. So, like, Jenny, you are looking for this museum job now, but you could be doing anything in 10 years. And I think it's interesting, Maddie, Chris has said to me since – you visited here multiple times. She goes, I don't think Maddie's going to stay in finance and accounting and not because you're not good at it or talented at it, but because she sees your talent as so much bigger than that. Um, oh, so I well, think it'll be you. really interesting. I'll make sure my new coworkers listen to yes, us. Yes, exactly. So anyway, follow your dreams. Don't stress. It will all work out. Yes. Just make sure you can afford your ramen. So yes. Life advice um, from Jenny. Che. Do you have a millennial moment for the group? Um, it's been kind of a constant one because I graduated and I'm moving out of my apartment and moving back home. Um, but I'd say like one specific one I feel as a very young person is that I was getting ice cream the other day with a friend and my friend's younger sister who's a sophomore in high school. And we we're talking about generational differences and how even though there's not that many years between us, it does feel like there's a huge gap. And then a strange man who was way older than us approaches us and goes, 
Are you guys millennials or Gen X or whatever they Gen call Z, the Gen young Z? Ones. Yes, sorry. <laughs> and we're like, we don't know. We don't really care. And then like, he's all like, "Well, your generation is screwed." <laughs> really I walked away. Oh, my God. oh yeah, um, I have a face that unfortunately in New York City people interpret as an invitation to come talk to me. Um, yeah, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I was like, cool. So some guy interrogated me about my generation and uninvited. Yeah. And then uh, screamed at us that we were screwed and walked away. So I felt like that was very much like, yeah. thank you, sir, for that right. unasked for advice. And I feel like that's on a micro level kind of what the media does a little bit because I feel like there's so many think pieces and, you know, a lot of which we've highlighted on this podcast that are just like Gen X and baby boomers being like, millennials are screwed for xyz reason but then give no like context behind it or any solutions and they're just like screaming into the void and then as a millennial you're just like cool thanks yeah no i think it's hard and i think it's really (laughs) interesting too because i think we have i think as humans we have a culture of always being like young people are screwed the earth is going to hell in a handbasket i mean Apparently, the philosopher, great philosopher Homer in the year like 928 BC, which I am totally making up, so please do not quote me on that interweb (laughs) friends, but he said, uh, we live in a degenerate age. So, you know, this has been going on for like thousands of years and the human race is still going strong. So I take hope from that. Yeah, definitely. All hope is not lost. This is a very optimistic podcast. Yeah, we love Um, optimism. Yay. So Shay, do you have a campfire toasty for us? Um, I do. And and I've sadly, did I close out of the window where I was had it? Oh, this is a millennial moment, effort? closing out of your tabs. Sorry. Oh, oh I no. don't. I okay. hoard my tabs. I love my tabs. I live with my tabs. They never get closed. No. <laughs> so um, I was, I'm like not a huge like internet person, so I don't know like YouTube celebrities <laughs> or any of that crap. But, <laughs> Outside um, of Shay's website, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but I was uh, I, a newsletter for this like woman that I follow. She sent, she did an interview. Oh, her name is Marie Forleo. But anyway, she did an interview with um, Francesca Ramsey, who do you guys know who that is? Yeah. So I don't. Jenny is nodding, but I don't know. So she's like originally is a YouTube star. um, She's like a writer and a comedian. And is this Jenna Marbles? Like myself. No, she was at the Met Gala. Uh, She was interviewing Rihanna. She's like kind of um, like a YouTuber. I would say like probably like a general social media influencer. But she is like a comedian. It has like a specific bend. Yeah. So she did a video a couple years ago that um, when that whole like shit white girl say thing was kind of mm-hmm. out in the media and everyone was making parodies off of the parody and she did one that was like shit white girls say to their black friends um and it was really clever and brilliant and it like kind of catapulted her into this um super stardom and she went on anderson cooper and when she was on anderson cooper she was just apparently afterwards like lambasted by um other activists, et cetera, because she didn't really have her like language down and the language about what she wanted to say. And I thought that was the really PC interesting. police. Yeah. So she wrote this book called, well, that escalated quickly. And I'm, I haven't read it yet. Cause I just found out about it yesterday, but I am 
really excited to read it because I was watching this interview with her and she's just like amazingly well-spoken, but she talks a lot about, um, and kind of why I wanted to bring it up. First of all, cause I'd like everyone to read the book and I kind of want to have a camp adulthood book club about it. Um, but you know, she, we talk so much about how our generation and the generation coming after us engage on social media. And we also talk a lot about how can we be mindful as let's call ourselves public figures and the way we talk about uh, race and appropriation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she talks about this so meaningfully and mindfully and gives like actual practical tips for how to uh, not only be a more mindful person who's talking in the public eye, but how to interact with people when they say things that are not appropriate or use language that is not, and I, I don't want to say politically correct because that's not really the term, but language that is not, you know, respectful to people of color or whatever. Um, so anyway, I, I don't guess there's no really like talking point on that besides that she's really cool and I want everybody to read her book because I want to read her book. Um, but yeah, that's all. So maybe Jenny yeah. can add something more interesting in than I just went off the, this is why, <laughs> this is why I always am really prepared, but today I didn't take any notes and this is the result. That's totally fine. No, I think that's good. I definitely, even though, you know, we're obviously not like, you know, public figures, but anytime you put something out on the internet and even I'm thinking back, if you read John Ronson's book, how to, so you've been publicly shamed. Mm -hmm. He talks about the woman who... Justine Sacco? Yeah. She actually just got hired. Did she really? Uh, she's like a major corporation. Um, yeah. Not social media, but she's like definitely like a communications director. Because right. I just saw somebody talking about um, how, yeah, that like that narrative isn't totally true because she's pretty much like been forgiven. Like Right. But it took, it took a long time. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And there's definitely other people. But Justine Sacco is a good example. She was the one she was like a nobody and she like tweeted something off color she was like on her way to africa she was like making a joke about it, how black people have aids i'm paraphrasing obviously yeah but that was like the just it was not cool it was yeah. not cool it was an off-color joke it ended up blowing up she got death threats she got fired from her job it was just like a lot of mm -hmm. things and so you think even the the point that i'm trying to make is that even if you're not a public figure like you still want to make sure that what you're putting on social media and how you're representing yourself is in a good light and also being able to separate, like, what is a satirical joke from, like, what is someone being serious? Like, all those kinds of things. Like, media literacy is so important. Mm -hmm. But I definitely, and I'm trying to do it less because I think it ends up, at least for me personally, I'm not saying everyone has to do this, but I am trying to do more of, like, saying how I really feel and, you know, not worrying so much about potential backlash but with that comes and this is why I'm excited yeah. to read this book Shay is like being able to do that while also being respectful and you know not saying something inadvertent or putting your foot in your mouth just because you didn't know and it sounds like this book has a lot of good ways exactly to do that. and I think she just she talks about you know being kind of forgiving of yourself and forgiving of others and then the one thing that she talked about in this interview that I wanted to mention because I think it is so timely um, and also so interesting that she talked about the kind of the call out versus the call in is how she terms it. And the call out is like when you're on Twitter and you're and somebody says something insensitive and you're like, ah, you're an insensitive asshole. And then you get like a hundred people in on the conversation and people are getting retweeted or whatever. But a call in is like 
if you see someone who's a friend or maybe an acquaintance or maybe like three degrees of separation post something <laughs> insensitive and instead of calling them out, you call them in and you send them a direct message or you text them and you say, hey, like this isn't really cool and this is why it wasn't cool. I just thought you'd like to know. So then you're able to have like a dialogue. And she said, and I want to read more about this and I didn't have time, but apparently this happened um, with John Legend and Kanye. I was just going to mention that. So Kanye basically tweeted something insensitive. Maybe Jenny, you know more about it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And John Legend like called him out in a private text and Kanye tweeted it. Yeah. Tell us, Jenny. Like what? Yeah. Well, Kanye was like off going off about how I mean it's been happening for a while but he's been off Twitter and then he came back on and he was saying like his uh make America great great again hat was signed and he took a picture of it and then um he was saying that like basically he went on TMZ and they interviewed him and I forget if John Legend texted before or after but this is all part of the same thing and he says that uh slavery was a choice and it was an absolute just a meltdown. lot of wild shit happening. Yeah. So then John Legend told him, like, these are the problems. Like, you're not understanding as, like, a wealthy celebrity that, like, you know, what you talk about is affecting people. Trying to educate instead of being like, fuck Kanye West. Yeah. So then he texted him, and then Kanye tweeted Post, it. Yeah. And he took a screenshot and tweeted it. And then John Legend texted him back saying, if you're going to be <laughs> screenshotting and yeah. tweeting this, just mention that I have a single out now. Which I thought was That's great. So great. I, I love kind it. of lightens the mood a so little bit. So then he screenshotted that and tweeted it out. So then That's it was funny. like, yeah, at least he got some self promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just shout out really quickly that if John Legend and Chrissy Teigen need a nanny, I will totally go back to the nanny life and be their nanny forever until their little boy is 18 years old or older because I love them both. And I love it. And they just had adorable. a new baby, so you have even more years yeah. than 18. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think this goes back to Shay, whatever episode when we were talking about the like gun control situation and how, you know, if even if if you're on the receiving end versus like posting something versus being on the receiving end, like if you're just coming at anyone, whether you're in the right or not, or your intentions are good, if you're coming at it with anger, just being like, We're making a list of all the people that suck and you're on it now, like that doesn't really do a whole lot in my mind like sometimes the frustration is good and sometimes there are people collectively that it's like all right that's human nature to like keep the people on the outside who deserve to be on the outside but for little things and especially I think for lack of a better term the people that are really well-meaning and a lot of times it is like progressives liberals whatever you want to call it who are very well-meaning who then pick at another person who is also very well-meaning for not having for saying something off color mm-hmm. or not using the right terms or like whatever you want to call it. And that just ends up like, let's focus on the real problems. Don't focus on each other. You know, yeah. it just to me seems a little self-defeating. Just wondering, um, because I am a person who I pretty much exclusively use Twitter and no other social media. Yeah. Like Your Twitter presence is great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Good Lord. See, that's the problem. I was just going to mention that I think like me and my friends and people who have like grown up with uh, who don't remember like a day before the internet mm-hmm. um, we've gotten so used to social media that we kind of forget what it is that it's yeah. basically a world forum where you yeah. have a megaphone all oh, the yeah. time yeah and for the most part I would say like given the mo- how much volume is being put into it I would say like 85% of the time nothing happens yeah. and then there's the 15% where everything happens right um, but I was wondering are we talking mostly about like Twitter because I feel like yeah, Twitter this isn't often like, like an Instagram problem no. of like backlash and I outrage. Do not and it's tweet. probably also, a Facebook. Pro- 
Yeah. Oh, you don't? Okay. I think it's definitely like when you were saying, like, when this girl went on Anderson Cooper and then a bunch of people get on Twitter. I think people yeah. use Twitter, but I think it also happens on Facebook, too. Like, I see people... That's true. See, I just I don't think it's, use a, it's a written word situation, because you're not going to post a picture of an Instagram and then the people... You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's not like a... It's, it's a visual medium, but... Yeah. Even, like, full-scale magazine articles I've seen written about, like, why people suck so bad. And it's like, all right, can we... There has to be a gray area. Everything can't be, like, the shittiest thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah. I think, honestly, I think it is really a question of volume. It's just too much. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's so hard to wade through, like, the nuanced good opinions from the terrible shouting. And so it's like, you just turn it all off. Because it's like, why listen to any of it when you can't tell the difference? Right. Which sometimes that's good. I think taking a break from social media and actually thinking about something and doing your own research and not just taking like the dominant opinion is sometimes the way to go, I think. But yeah. Reading a book is helpful for yeah. a lot of people on Twitter. Just history gonna throw books. that out yeah. there. <laughs> As a student of history, I'm sure. Yes. Not that I always did my reading. Yeah. But, you know, I got the gist yeah. on a lot of them. <laughs> okay. Reading, in, reading a book in general is always a good idea, I say. More books. Yes. More books. Um, all right. Well, my millennial moment, or not millennial moment, my hot topic is about North Korea. So get ready. Yay. Nothing political. Um, so I finished reading a book that was recommended by... Uh, Jen Tonti, who former guest of the pod, and sh- it's about a North Korean defector. It's called "In Order to Live" by Yeonmi Park. Have you heard of this? I think my roommate, who is also friends with John Tonti, Jen Tonti, John Tonti, good lord, Jen Tonti <laughs> is also reading this because she was telling oh, yeah. me all about Korea. Yeah, yeah. And basically, the gist of this book: the girl is a millennial. She's about my age, and when she was thirteen, she left North Korea, went into China. I don't want to spoil the whole book, but basically she, like, gets, um, she gets, like, human trafficked and, like, oh, sold nice. as, like, a child bride to, like, these guys in northern China. There's no women there. Shocker. <laughs> and they can't find wives, and so they traffic North Korean defector women to be their wives. This happened in 2007, so anyone that wants to tell me that, like, this shit doesn't happen today totally does um but she ended up making her way to south korea really harrowing journey and now she lives freely with her mom and her sister in south korea and you know all these horrible things happen to her it's a great book it's really short really well written but she talks about um and i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation it's like jang madong i want to say and i read an article about this in the washington post as well which i'll link to um but it's basically about the collapse in North Korea, there was a huge famine in the 90s. So this was during the time when the millennial generation would have been being born. Up until that point, people don't like to say this, but at least like the basic needs in North Korea were met, according to like people that have lived there. Like the system was working, the communism, socialism, whatever. People had like a basic level. It wasn't anything crazy or like by American standards, but people were getting by. People were not starving to death. There's not, you know what's happening in North Korea now or what's been happening throughout our generation just wasn't happening yet. Like, people got their basic needs met from the government. Then the government started neglecting all of that, and there was a huge famine in the 90s. And so the people that were born into that famine never knew a time when the government provided for them. And so they ended up having to form these markets called jamadongs or whatever, and they're basically black market markets where people smuggle stuff in from South Korea and from China and they sell it. And so these kids are like, what the Washington Post was saying, are the purest form 
of capitalism that there is today. Because, you know, kids that are born into America, even if you're poverty stricken, there's enough of a societal measure that there's, you know, a welfare system where you can get, there's enough charity and enough capitalism and there's enough things happening where you're probably not going to starve to death in America. Probably not. Places, right? Yeah. Probably not. And, you know, it might be harder to get the resources, but they're there. And, sorry, pause. They're doing construction in my building, so I apologize for the drilling. Borderline musical. It's very odd. Yeah, they're doing it, like, right under our feet, so it's, like, very distressing. But it's intermittent. I'll try to edit around it. But, um, anyways, so these kids in North Korea, they didn't, they don't have a concept. It seems so intuitive to us because it's how we live, but they don't have a concept of what capitalism is. So they would say, okay, my family makes beans. What can I do with beans? And so they would make all these variety of things that you can make with beans, like tofu and all this stuff. And they would be like, all right, so-and-so, my friend who's like nine years old, all these are like really small kids. They make corn so they can make noodles with the corn. They can make different like patties and stuff and they would trade them. So it started out as like a barter system. Sorry, we're going to pause for a hot sec. Okay. (laughs) we're just gonna have to deal with it sorry listeners hopefully it doesn't sound like shit when i listen back to this but you know oh my god it's like right under our feet oh no (laughs) like that famous phrase heaven is under our feet as well as over our heads hopefully the drilling i love that we'll just pause for a hot sec you know so they started out bartering and then they developed kind of like a black market currency and then they started using like actual North Korean currency and they developed these markets and they became so successful in preventing people from dying and actually getting food that the government kind of turned a blind eye to it because this type of thing was illegal there. Like you couldn't set up a for-profit market. And so these kids have a very good concept of capitalism and it's changed the fabric of North Korean society, even with the oppression that they face. So I just thought that was really interesting. And I feel like we talk a fair amount and, you know, just in the media in general about kind of the late stage capitalism that America's in and how, you know, it doesn't serve everyone in that system and how there's a lot of evils of capitalism. But I just thought, you know, to kind of put a little perspective to that and show that there are different sides to the same coin and how capitalism can save people in some situations. So that's it. I think that's really interesting because I, again, because we live in a time where everything is so polarized and it's really hard to have a balanced conversation about anything. Um, I think we tend to forget that capitalism or at least a social capitalism like we have in most of the Western world, is pretty much as good as it gets, you know? So yeah, these kids in Korea, they're making the best that they can do and, and capitalism, capitalism works at the end of the day and communism does not. No. Well, like, it, I don't it know works how I'd say that North Korea is fully communist. It's more of a dictatorship where they're starving. And right. Well, it used yeah. to be in like the 60s and 70s. I think it was kind of more. It's it was definitely more communist than it is. Oh now. yes, yeah. Like, but I would say out of the farms. 90s, where that like with the welfare right. system, there's nothing. There's no fallback. There's no government assistance. No. I would say that's not communism in its theoretical state. No. No. no yeah. It's definitely no. And I was saying that North Korea is, but I think. Anyway, yeah, we complain a lot about capitalism, but it works. Yeah, it's just good to see, like, that book was really sobering because it was, like, obviously, you know, you're, like, whatever problems you're dealing with are not going to be as bad as, like, 
you know, being trafficked and like starving to death. Being so a nine-year-old definitely... Korean corn kingpin. Yeah, exactly. It's just like amazing, like the human spirit just in general, but also like when people are at their most base level, like what are the ideas that they come up with without having an outside influence? I think that's the most fascinating thing about North Korea to me is like how humans, no matter how they're raised, they kind of come to these like core values and like they figure out what's important to them, family, like your own survival, like being able to provide for the people that you love. Like those are all things, if you have everything or if you have nothing, like that's what people care about and they will do anything to like fulfill those tenants, whether it's illegal or not. So that reminds me actually of, I don't know if you know, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I don't. It's a really, really short uh, book about his um, experience during the Holocaust and mm. being a um, prisoner in concentration camps and uh, and labor camps and, you know, his basically how he survived and everything. And he wrote the book. He was, um, I believe, a doctor of psychology. And he wrote the book on scraps of paper that he got and sewed it into the lining of his clothing. Oh, wow. And so it's like, not all of it, but most of it was written in like real time as he was experiencing it, like writing it Mm -hmm. and hiding it in the lining of his, whatever he could own. Um, And so, yeah, that reminds me of like the resilience of like the human spirit and what it takes to survive. And he comes at it much more um, philosophically because of, he might be a doctor of philosophy actually, but like, yeah, so his approach from his education is like, how do human beings kind of continue to suffer but still exist? And then, like, you know, he was freed and he wrote this book. And, yeah, so I think it's, like, kind yeah. of mirror images of, like, how yeah, definitely. people economically approach suffering but also, like, how to ph- philosophically mm-hmm. approach suffering. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Um, um, Jenny, all right, Jenny do, you have a do you have any moment or shall we dive into the interview? Um, if there's anything from the news or just life in general, pop culture, I know you're into that. that I you do want to love talk about. pop culture. Um, right now, I'm just in general, like, I'm just really, really about the the Tonys are approaching, and so I'm very excited. Ooh. Musical theater. Who are you most excited to see a performance from or to win? Oh, Jesus. I'm rooting for uh, the revival of Once on this Island, um, oh, yeah. which is about a storm-stricken island based on Haiti, and it feels very relevant in today's world with uh, Puerto Rico and Houston were uh, hit really badly with tropical storms. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, again, also about, like, how people continue and tell their stories and survive even when, like, things go terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. I, too, am looking forward to the Tonys. All right, well, let's dive into the interview. Mm -hmm. Yay. So I want to ask you... I alluded to it earlier, but you have a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came about? We call it the Bechdel Quest um, because Alison Bechdel, the author, yeah, uh, who had a musical named Phone Home, was so um, good. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't based realize... on her graphic novel of her life. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that was the same person. Yeah. yeah. And her friend, and uh, but it's named after her. It's called the Bechdel Test. But but her friend was the one who kind of constructed it, and it's a test for any piece of media, and it's whether or not there are two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. So it has to fit that criteria. And it's a very low bar. <laughs> so it's not the be-all and end-all I'm of... I'm glad this podcast 
meets the Bechdel test. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. And that's, like, the whole point of our podcast, too, is, like, to talk about media. We do it, and then we talk about media that tries to do it, or fails to. And it's a low bar for, you know, female representation, but that's the whole point, is that it's so low, and so much media still fails the test. Yeah. And so, you know, we were just really disappointed in the fact that there are very, very few female movie critics with major outlets. Yeah. That's um, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And so, like, I think, like, that's a huge portion of the conversation when we talk about representation. It's not just women creating art, but it's women receiving art. Um, and I think, like, Tina Fey talked about it on her latest episode of David Letterman's Netflix show about how once more women got in the SNL room because she was the first female head writer. Oh, yeah. Didn't David Letterman kind of, like, put his foot in his mouth where he was like, women don't want to be in the writer's room, and she was like, false. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Can't even. Yeah, it was terrible. But, uh, yeah, so she said that once she got women in the room, more sketches by women started being picked, not from any, like, malicious intent by the male writers, but they just didn't get the humor. So, like, mm -hmm. for example, like, a tampon ad, they just didn't find it funny because it wasn't about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is just, like, getting people with different experiences in. But also I think we need to start training people to find themselves in others' experiences. Yeah. And that starts yeah, at a young a age. Point. Yeah. I think that's all about exposure from young children's media. Yeah. I think it's really great that you made a podcast about that. I just <laughs> finished reading um, a book by Amanda Posner. She was one of the talking heads in the Misrepresentation oh, yeah. um, documentary. And she wrote a book like 10 years ago called Reality Bites Back. And it's about representation. Have you heard of this book? Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Um, and, you know, she's a journalist and a media critic. And she talks a lot about those tenants and how, you know, she uses reality TV kind of as the lens, but how poor, like, the female representation is and you know, minority representation, just everything in reality TV. And one of the things, like, the back half of her book, which I love because I I get very upset when I read books that are critical of something and then they don't give the average person anything to do about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I just think that that's not super empowering as, like, a consumer of the book. It's like, all right, well, now I'm just, like, depressed at the world. Like, thanks. That really got me nowhere. Um, but her the whole back half of her book is, like, these are actual concrete things that anyone can do to be more literate about their media. And she mm -hmm. also really encourages, and this was, like, 10 years ago, so I was like, wow, what a pioneer. She was like, if you don't like the criticism of the media that you're watching or you don't think that there's enough representation, like, start your own blog. She talked a lot about, like, fanzines, which I thought was fun. Yeah. Oh, oh those were super important, especially yeah. for female viewers of Star Trek. That's kind of where oh, it yeah. started. Oh, um, really? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, fan magazines, there was, like, Star Wars came a little bit later, but that hasn't always been super welcoming to female fans. But Star Trek was, uh, had a lot of female fans, and they all contributed to, like, the fanzines, and so that was, like, a major scene, and honestly, it's, like, the precursor to going to, like, date myself, but, like, the yeah. fan fiction and, like, Yeah, the... totally, like, getting on, like, a Reddit or something. Yeah, and like... and, like, Tumblr and everything, and that's kind of, like, the, yeah, that's the yeah. descendant of all that. And... But I think that's great, and it's kind of, you know, a low-cost way to, like, really put your money where your mouth is and if mm -hmm. it's like you know because that's I think something that everyone loathes is someone that's like well everything is wrong and we all hate it but then you're like okay well what are you doing about it to like actually change the conversation so I think it's great like what you guys are doing oh thank you to be fair the podcast is just an excuse for us to talk to each other and have something tangible come from the conversation because well, welcome to our otherwise <laughs> yeah it's just, like, we were just, like, you know what? We like talking about this. And we're, like, well, why don't we just record it? So yeah. it's, it's a little bit of an excuse because we don't go super in-depth all the time about feminism. Well, that's okay. But, uh, yeah, I just think, yeah, I think we need more female 
art creators and female art critics because I think, and I mean that diversity in all forms, you know, uh, sexuality, gender, race, like there needs to be like a definite push on both ends of like creating and receiving the art. Did you feel being kind of going back to your, you mentioned you had a degree in art history. (laughs) Did you feel that like being, did you feel like the field of art history wasn't as diverse as maybe you would want it to, or the fields of study (laughs) itself or not so much? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's art itself, like the history of art, the canon that is written is so male dominated. It's like, I, you can't even statistically it's mention like it. Yeah. The reason I got into art history was because I did a, a, a class, a seminar for my freshman year called making of an iconic image. And we had to do, uh, like just any topic for our final paper. And I wrote about female representation in literal artists represented in museums in the Whitney, the Guggenheim, the MoMA and the Met. Um, and I think the MoMA, which besides the Whitney should have the most recent art, it's modern. I think the rate of female artists represented is 7%. Oh, wow. Um, which is abysmal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, and like the Gorilla Girls came up because of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think this is really interesting on several levels. First of all, I love that in the humanities, there is this look at statistical representation because you think, oh, you humanities we sit around and we look at pictures and read books all day but really there's now so much of like okay here I'm taking a mathematical quantitative approach to whatever this humanities problem is so that's kind of just a side note but also you know it's so interesting having studied English as an undergraduate and a graduate student um, you know what I always thought was so funny was when you had to take the right the special classes that were like women in 18th century literature. And it's like, mm-hmm. why does that have to be a special class? Why can't just 18th century literature be women and men? And then if you want to take a specific class on, you know, George Eliot or whomever, then that's a specific class on one writer or two writers. But I always was, I never understood like why things were separated out yeah, that Yeah, it's way. like, why it's do we really have to have a Women's History Month? Oh, wait. Yeah. You know? This is something that's been turning over in my mind a lot, because this uh, last semester, I was taking another seminar called The Concept of Blackness in Art, and it was, it was I'm going to be honest, it's embarrassing that that was like my first introduction to so many iconic, influential, and important uh, black artists in American history. Um, and I think, like, and honestly, I wish we would have more of that, but I thought about that, how we can't be sequestered you know it's not like the real history is the history of like white dudes art and then you know oh if you want the option if you have the time to take this class you can learn about women right. if you have the time on your trip to new york you can and you go think to about the, the people that don't art. do that or the people the opposite way that are like i'm going to be so specialized in one thing that you kind of put the blinders on and don't realize everything else yeah. that's out there mm-hmm. and i think what's really interesting though that, that you can't forget especially and i'm not talking about when you're looking at art and literature and music from the last 150 years, because there I think there's really no excuse. But when you get before that, it wasn't that there weren't women creating all of these things. It's that they've literally been lost from history because there isn't a record of their work. So how can we engage with, you know, um, not the minorities, the word is escaping me uh, right now, but how can we... Like underrepresented. Marginalized? Artists? Marginalized. That's what I'm looking for. The marginalized. <laughs> that NYU degree is working. I know. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> um, when we're looking at 
you know, literature and art and music, et cetera, that has kind of come before, let's say, 1900. Um, and I think that's something to think about because it is out there if you dig for it. Um, but it's hard to find and it's hard to find teachers and professors to look at it. Equally. Yeah. Well, there is um, there was a, a lot of women in the Renaissance because there was so much money yeah. um, going into the arts. So one of the huge examples that people talk about is Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, and she uh, is a famous Renaissance painter. She's not well known, obviously, by pom- common pop culture, but she's definitely one of them. Um, that's why, honestly, if you look at the history of art, women are so many more authors, so many more famous uh, female authors. Like, literature is really the female domain of art, historically, because women were allowed to. You were allowed to stay home and learn uh, Yeah, it's what you could do in your off time. You could do it from the house. Yeah. Like, you didn't have to have, like, a sp- as long as you could read and write, you could do mm-hmm. it. And, like, you know, Jane Austen, Harriet Beecher Stowe, like, there are f- much more famous authors because that was seen as, like, an acceptable pastime and career for a woman. And so I, I hope that, like, we can sort of reevaluate who was given access to what in the past. Yeah. Because- yeah. I think fine art. Have you listened to Abby Jacobson's podcast? I have not. About art. So Abby Jacobson from um, Broad City, mm-hmm. she... Um, a lot of people don't know this, but she has a degree in fine art. Like, that's what she went to school for. And she has this big push to make fine art accessible to people because uh, I think it's one of so the important. last, like, people know about pop culture. People all have their favorite books. But, like, a lot of people either don't go to museums or don't understand it because it's not acceptable. And they might look at something mm-hmm. and be like, this is ugly or, you know, oh, it's not my style, so I'm not going to, like, look into the It's very elitist, too. It's yeah. very unwelcoming. And a lot of the schools are very expensive and there's not a lot of scholarships available for artists in the dis- in compared to other disciplines and so she goes to I think it's produced by the MoMA so she goes to the MoMA wait yes I, if, the, if it's the MoMA podcast then I know what you're talking yeah. about yeah and she'll bring I listened to one where she brought Hannibal Burris, who's a comic and it was he's so funny but she brings like a normal person mm-hmm. or someone who's kind of like funny and she brings them to the MoMA and they look at like one specific piece they're really short they're like 15 to 20 minutes and they'll look at a piece and she'll be like what's your initial thoughts and they'll say something funny or mm-hmm. something ignorant and then she'll be like this is kind of how you can look at this and this makes it interesting and then the person inevitably is like wow this is super interesting to me now and so for someone like me who doesn't have any experience with like fine art I found that like super relatable and yeah I definitely have more of an appreciation for like the fine art and like Renaissance art, like things that are kind of more quote unquote classically beautiful compared to like a modern art that I'm like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah. No, I'm definitely guilty of that where I just assume anyone I meet is uninterested and uneducated about art. And it's, it's hard when you, I mean, it, it's also like, I think a little bit of like a self like reflex. Cause I'm like, well, no one wants to hear me talk about yeah. art, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's like a kind of like, oh, don't want to seem too nerdy. So there's a little bit of that, um, I think, where we also, like, art people kind of sequester themselves on right. purpose. Um, or they're like, we know, like you were saying, the elitist attitude of, like, well, these people are, like, plebs or they're uneducated or they can't yeah. appreciate this. and Or they're, like, just interested in the decorative arts or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think also there are, you know, different schools of interpretation in any type of art or literature or music and... um you know, again, like you guys are saying, like people are turned away because it seems that there's only one way. And if they don't look at it and they don't understand it in the prescribed manner, then they're wrong. Um, so we want to get away from that. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about or not we talk a lot, but I just was thinking 
how, you know, how do you do this at an early age with our kids in school? And I don't know, you said you're looking into education as, you know, art education as you move on. So what, you know, I don't know, this just made me think of one of my favorite stories from when I was living that nanny life. I uh, took uh, my little charge, who was about two at the time, to the Met. And we would do this often. And he would like wake up from his nap and he'd get out of his little, you know, stroller and be walking around like trailing Cheerios through the Mets hallowed halls. <laughs> and I'll never forget he like stopped in front of one of Picasso's nudes and he was just like looking at it and he's like, that is an elephant. And then he just marched on. <laughs> and but I like loved that he didn't care. He was so he just wanted to make his statement and he's now almost nine and he still loves going to museums and talking Now, granted his mom is a gallerist so he's got kind of like a unique perspective but I'm like how do we make more kids like that who he's never afraid to say what he thinks um right and to engage and also, with adult art that's meant for adults you know how, how do we start that at a young age yeah and not being afraid to be I think a lot of people are turned off by it because they're like if you truly look at something and you're like, that is ugly and stupid, like, that is an opinion. It doesn't mean you have to, like, go disparage the artist or, like, ban them from every museum. But, like, yeah. there are unique... Obviously, if I was writing a paper, I would never be like, that's dumb and stupid. But, like, <laughs> you know, you're allowed to... Something that's, like, critically acclaimed, you're allowed to be like, that's ugly. I like my art to be more decorative. Yeah. Like, totally fine. Acceptable way to be. You know, you want to back that up with a little bit of, like, intellectual curiosity, but, like... I think a lot of people get turned off by it, especially with modern art, because they're like, I don't get it, and it's all ugly, so therefore, like, I'm just not going to engage with it. I'm never going to go to a modern... Like, I have so many friends, especially I studied abroad in Europe, that were like, I will never go to a modern art museum. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know know what you're talking about. And it's so weird, because even, like, people in New York City who are here, who are... I I feel confident saying have one of the best resources for art. Like, if you you love art, New York is the place to be. It's got countless art objects, art institutions, ways to learn. And, like, they're here in, like, the hub of art history. And they just, like, don't explore it. And it's a little frustrating when it's, like, dismissed so easily. But I think there's also a responsibility, and you guys can tell me if you... Hold on, I'm going to pause, because they're drilling right below us. I totally banged (laughs) on the ceiling and they stopped, so... Or on the ground. Um, uh, What was I going to say? Yeah, I think there is a responsibility. I also am fascinated by, like you know, the judging of art and also the fact that I think a lot of art now, it's like you have the people like at the very top, like Damien Hurst, and then there's a lot of people. We got an eye roll from Jenny on that one. <laughs> yeah, I also but, sorry. Hurst is. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? There's like a few like elite people. Most of them are men. Coincidence. Mm-hmm. And they're making millions and millions of dollars. And then there's like all the rest of the plebs is what it seems like to me as an uneducated person on this. Um, but I think that museums and galleries, especially ones, I think museums, especially ones that are pun- funded with public dollars, have a need to reflect the communities that they're in, mm-hmm. which a lot of them I think are getting better about, but don't necessarily do that. And especially if you're buying a piece that's hundreds of millions of dollars, is that really the best use of public funds? And does it represent the community that you're in? Maybe not. And also if you're a gallery and your focus is on you know, making art that's people want to buy. Like, if there's a market for yeah. it, you can make it. But I think a lot of people just see art as, like, one homogenous thing, but you have kind of the mix of, like, wanting to make money, 
but then museums who are trying to do like a public good that I think kind of gets muddled a little bit. Yeah. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. I just would say from having worked in kind of the gallery world and the art world for four years, I mean, what is happening? What I really saw working with all of these young artists and designers, particularly ones that did commissioned work, uh, we're not teaching and there are no resources for young people to learn the business of art and design. And yeah, they're really, really like, I feel so bad for these kids because some of them are enormously talented and they all, they literally either see themselves as having to be a starving artist where they never know where, sometimes they don't know where their next meal is coming from, or they have to really like sell out and be kind of the Instagram darling of the art world. And we're not teaching these kids how to market themselves and advocate for themselves and talk to museums and talk to galleries, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's really interesting. And then I agree with you, Maddie, as well. You know, our institutions are not necessarily doing the right thing when they're, it's all about big commissions. So Jenny probably can talk about that more. Um, well, again, I have never had like a full job. This is just what I can like my opinion from like a student who's like looking into the careers, um, and the fields. But I think like for me as like an optimist, I think, uh, hold on one second. Let me just try to think what I'm going to say. It's hard Um, with the drawing. You're super right that like the institutions need to reflect their communities. Um, if I'm going to be bold on this public podcast, charging $25 for a ticket for non-New York residents from the Met is not helping that it yeah. it's just not that's not wait, a good move forward. So the Met is no longer pay what you want but you must pay something. Um it's no first of all they had a lawsuit they about changed that. It, Originally yeah. it was pay what you want but it said $25 and pay what you want in small font yeah. and they had a lawsuit saying that it was not clear to those who came into the museum. So that's why that font got so much larger yeah. on their yeah. boards and they all yeah. And then um, now I think that it's not happening yet, but they're transitioning into anyone who is not a New York resident or like a student mm-hmm. with an affiliation or like the exceptions that let you pay nothing for a museum in New York um, will have to. Well, it's a mandatory twenty five dollar uh, wow. entrance fee. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about special exhibitions. I feel like that probably covers everything right. in the museum. So, um, but yeah, no, I just think like that's not a good move forward. That's not the way but then that also shows like the real truth of art and especially contemporary yeah. art is that and like, it, art... it follows the money mm-hmm. right and even old art is very hard to maintain yeah it's very expensive it's expensive and you know you have legal rights and reproductions of textbooks yeah. that's why art textbooks are enormously oh interesting expensive because you have to pay all of the rights even if there's like a reduced it's like three hundred dollars yeah. just because all of the images and so, yeah, it just accumulates, and if I'm allowed to be a little bit nerdy, I think art history is a lot like comic books, in the sense that, like, it's very hard to just jump in. I don't know mm-hmm. if either of you it's guys... It's not totally accessible. Yeah, yeah, you can't just, like, open up, like, volume yeah. 10 and of, of the newest Iron yeah. Man, and then, like, be like, you oh, really I You really need someone happening. to introduce you or get a formal education in it. Yeah, and, like, art history is very self-referential. Um, it's very... it's. Art yeah. history is about art history. There's a history. little bit of, like, a circle yeah. jerk situation. It is, it is. And, like, so, you Good know, one, it's really hard. <laughs> My mom actually, side note, hi, mom, uh, breaking the fourth wall, she actually told me that the term circle jerk is said too much on the podcast, so now I'm going to say it every chance oh, I get. <laughs> I, interesting. Thanks, Marianne. <laughs> I had never noticed <laughs> until she said it. 
but now I'm like, I'm going to say it all the well, time. That's, that's this episode's circle jerk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, sorry to interrupt <laughs> No, you. no, you're right, though. And so, like, it's not easy to jump into without an education, and then education itself is such mm-hmm. a barrier. Um, and so that's not to say that, like, any person can't have an opinion right. or create or like art. That's just saying that, like, in order to fully understand a lot of it, you need to know a lot about Christianity. And, yeah. Uh, you need or to know- be in a place, like, I wonder, I, I sincerely wonder, because I took an art history class in London, which is similar to New York. There's a lot of, you know, opportunities to go to museums. If you're an art history student in, like, you know, I don't even know, like, Bumblefuck Nowhere, Idaho, you, like, are at a state school where there's no yeah. museums. Like, how... Do you think the quality of the art education specifically there is not as good? Do you have an opinion on this, Shay? Um, no? I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, sorry, I don't know, Jenny, if you have an opinion on this exact thing. I, I guess my thought is... I feel like you kind of have to see it in its, like... Yeah, because no? there's all this... Maybe thought, not. This, I don't know. I mean, we're talking a lot about, like, understanding and have to come at it with the education and the history and whatever... Yes, I am more educated than most people. But, you know, my first experiences with art were and I was lucky enough to be able to travel to Europe in high school and in college. And but, you know, I would go to these museums as people would say, like, oh, you have to go to the Prado. I wouldn't be going with this necessarily huge background. And then and maybe this is what, Maddie, you're kind of alluding to is like when you have the opportunity, even if you know nothing I remember being at the Reina Sofia in Madrid and standing in front of Guernica and like crying. And I knew nothing about the Battle of Guernica. I didn't know at that point. I mean, now I know quite a bit about it. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I think that's a sign of quality art. Does it elicit a response? And there was just so there was so much art that I saw when I lived in Spain that I didn't necessarily know the context of, but it was so moving and so incredible. And that inspired the passion for me to learn more about. And I am, again, by no means an expert, but... Um, that's what made me want to learn more. So is it just about kind of getting tiny eyeballs in front of big art? And how do we make that happen, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like getting an art history degree and only being able to go to like a museum on a field trip or something is maybe not as meaningful. But that only yeah, I think it's like makes a, your a degree definitely, more meaningful. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a lot of different factors. I do think there is a difference. And this is like unfortunate just because like, geographic location yeah. uh there's a difference to seeing art in person and i have done that i i i weep in front of different works of art i'm very basic yeah. i started i've cried in multiple museums and like i'm just like open about it yeah. i just like sit down and i'm like time yeah. to feel things yeah. um but yeah luckily one day i caught starry night alone and i was just like crying uh, in the moma <laughs> and i was just like yeah lean in lean in yeah. just feel it um that's awesome <laughs> thanks i love that uh, but I think, yeah, it's a lot of factors. I think you do need to see art in person when you get the chance. Um, but I do I do think it, it starts it starts in school, but it starts at home. Like, my parents yeah. took me to the MoMA. And I, I see a lot of parallel cultural aspects to theater and art. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both are very much mm-hmm. in New York City is considered, like, the hub of both. And, like, I was exposed to theater. I mean, I don't remember my first Broadway show because I was so young. Yeah. And so, like... I was quiet, though. I just yeah. want to point that out. My parents Good taught me good theater <laughs> etiquette. <laughs> I had it ingrained in my head as a kid. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, like, 
And there's, like, that weird rush. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but, like, when you're a kid and you, like, watch something that wasn't made for children. It's like when you watch, like, a movie that's mm-hmm. not, like, an animated movie. It's not inappropriate, but, like, it's like when a little kid sees, like, Phantom of the Opera. It's not inappropriate, yeah. but you're like, oh, I'm getting to see adult yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, like, you have to revisit it later when you're an adult and you can fully appreciate it. But there's something really exciting about that. I yeah. love that as a kid. And yeah. I think it's And I think, really... like, that kind of art. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point because... I don't think there, I think there are very few places in this country where you can't, maybe North Dakota, but like, I'm just trying to think of like the most rural places, maybe Utah, no, Salt Lake City has got good museums. Like there are very few places in this country where you're not, let's say four hours from a quality museum and you don't necessarily, you have to have the means to get there. So let's say gasoline or whatever, but if you're a student you know, you can get into most of these mu- museums for free. And like, I grew up in a very, very rural area, but my parents and my dad especially made a point of, you know, we would get in the car and we would drive two hours and go to Pittsburgh several, let's say four times a year to go to the different museums there. And I think that makes a big difference in, you know, the appreciation I have today. Yeah, so. it's one of those things. I think if you make an effort, it's definitely doable for a lot of people. It's just... Again, the financial aspect and the time yeah. and, you know, the convenience factor. And, well, you know, I if mean, you're a kid and your parents are not into it, you basically have to wait until you're an adult. Yeah. Or, yeah, like you have to wait till school. And then I can admit, like, I, I went, I'm from a rather wealthy town and our arts program was getting cut. Yeah. Like a program like our theater program, our arts program, programs that made money in the town mm-hmm. were getting cut because like, the funding was just not there. And so it's like, you know, if a, t- a wealthy town in New Jersey mm-hmm. can't get funding, mm-hmm. like I never took an art history class till I got to college. Right. So I didn't take art history till I started paying for school. And so that's not going to help anybody at all. That kind of model of like that system of you don't get taught about, about like the history of art, about like art appreciation in depth yeah. until you start paying for and school. people don't realize too, I, I just want to mention too, like I've taken one art history class, like <laughs> I mentioned, but even in that class, I have a history minor and Same. the amount, oh, oh my amazing. gosh. In what? Do you have like a concentration? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the minor, you know, I didn't. I mean, yeah, yeah. I just took a smattering of everything. But um, I learned so much about actual, quote unquote, actual history from my art history classes. Like a lot of you were saying you have to know about Christianity. You have to know about, you know, the context in which the art is happening. You have to know yeah. the biography of the artist. Like Economics, there is a lot of actual you know, politics. Like Yeah, it is truly. Yeah one of those things so not that you can't love it without knowing that but I do think it never someone who's not like I'm never going to be a fine artist I'm never going to work in a museum but for someone who is interested in history it was a nice lens to be able to learn those things yeah for me at least um all right shall we dive into the campfire or the rapid fire questions let's sling some archery arrows at our young guests at the end dodge as best as possible no you want to accept them Oh, okay. Yes. Like Cupid's arrow. Yes. I will let your yes our questions, questions into my heart. We're going to ask you just a series of rapid fire questions so people can get to know you okay. and Ooh. some recommendations. Um, favorite book? Goodness. Or my brain said Harry Potter, but I know that's not true. <laughs> uh, not that I don't love Harry Potter. That was just my go-to yeah. reaction from ice, gra- ice breakers in school. <laughs> um, 
Well, I was just thinking about this with your comment about the little boy that you took to the museum and said that's an elephant. Yeah. Uh, the Little Prince, because oh, I don't know if you guys have read it, yeah. but there's illustrations in the book, and he draws a little shape, and he asks all the adults, what is this? And they all say a top hat, but he says, no, it's a snake that ate an elephant. Aww. And it's got, like, the humps. And so yeah. I think, like, uh, I love The Little Prince, and I would say, like, my comfort book besides Harry Potter is The Outsiders. I take that with me no matter where I go on vacation, wherever I'm, like, when I move somewhere else, like, it's always with me. I just love that you have a comfort book. Sorry, now I'm derailing (laughs) the rapid fire. Because I have several, and I will literally carry them around with me everywhere, and I just Mm -hmm. got all my books in one place for the first time in, like, almost 15 years, and all my comfort books are going to be together, and I'm going to read them all this month. I'm so excited. So... Anyway, go on. Comfort oh, books are turn. great. They're yeah. like the mashed potatoes of literature. Yes. Yeah, it's great. They're great. Uh, favorite movie? E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Oh. And I talk about it every episode of our podcast because <laughs> I'm incapable of not talking about it whenever they put a microphone in front of my face. Um, and so, yeah, but it's it's a tie. I would say that one. I'd also mention Singing in the Rain and Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So those three, but I've been really on an ET kick, so that's fine. Sorry, I can't narrow it down one. I keep naming multiple. That's totally fine. Um, Favorite television show or a favorite? 30 Rock is my go-to. I love that one. That's my sense of humor all the time. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm going to say 30 Rock. It's kind of basic, but, you know. It's a good show for a reason. Yeah. I'm less of a TV person. I would say it goes, like, yeah, yeah, movies priority, usually. Mm -hmm. Favorite childhood snack? Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its are good. So good. My parents brought them when I was studying in Florence when I was abroad. I made them bring me three boxes (laughs) because I could not purchase them in Italy. Um, And so out of everything, they brought me bagels from New York (laughs) that they put in, like, freeze bags. And then, like, and then Cheez-Its in boxes. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, Favorite museum in New York? Like, if someone's only in town for, like, a day, which museum should they go to? If you're only in town for the day, I'm going to tell you the Met just because the sheer size of the collection. Um... Yeah, I'm just going to go, but my favorite museum to visit in New York City uh, is the Museum of Natural History. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, non-art. I I, I, it's so cool. The Science. Gem and Mineral Room is my favorite, because that carpet's probably from, like, the 70s. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, I just, I love that room. I, I used to collect rocks as a kid, Ooh. and I don't, I never got rid of that love of shiny objects. <laughs> I like it. That's awesome. Um, Favorite? Oh, this is going to be a hard one for you, but favorite piece of art? Well, Starry Night, I feel like it's like my go-to. My graduation cap was Starry Night. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Over over the New York skyline was like, Cute. you know, <laughs> again, basic. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's just something beautiful about being able to take pain and turn it into beauty. And I think that that's kind of like an artist's job. And not always. It's to make you mm-hmm. think, it's to make you feel, but like... I just think, like, also I just want to touch it. And that's, yeah. somebody tweeted once, they're like, people who don't know art just know that we all got into this, the touch the art. That's the only reason oh, we're all doing this. I love that. Yeah. And it's real. I got to touch a Federalist paper, and I almost died. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I texted my sister immediately. I was like, I'm touching a Federalist paper, Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and yeah, That's pretty awesome. Uh, so I would love to touch all of the objects. Thank you very much. Yeah. I, I have I to feel agree. Like that's a- there is like a bizarre thrill when not only do you get to touch the art, but because I worked in furniture, I got to Ooh. manhandle the art. Like, it wasn't just like a gentle finger. It was like me throwing, you know, 
$1,500 pieces of sculpture into the back of a pickup truck. And it was like amazing. It felt so good. Yeah. Then I got to It feels like when you touch it, you feel ownership over it. Yeah. I don't know why. Makes it a little less precious. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, that is an excellent. Do you have any more questions, Shay? Uh, well, Shall I we? realized we never had. Oh, Jenny, uh, where can we find your podcast? Is it on all the regular uh, places? It's just on uh, like the iTunes store okay, for great. podcasts. Yeah, awesome. my sister's more that's in charge of this than I am, if that's not obvious. <laughs> oh, wait, you do this podcast with your actual real life sister? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> we just that. actually, our latest episode is us talking about sisters in movies and TV. I oh, love fun. That. And what we felt was like the most realistic. Cute. Cute. <laughs> awesome. It. So it's the Bechtel Quest. The Bechtel yep, Quest. the Bechtel Quest. Awesome. And where else can we find you on the interwebs should you want to be found? Um, Just Jenny DeCandia on Facebook. But disclaimer, I don't accept friend requests, even from people I know, because I just don't like looking at notifications. So, um, so you send her a, a DM being what like, you I want you on the Twitter. That. My Twitter is, <laughs> God, it's an embarrassing handle. I should change it. Uh, Candia Land 96. And <laughs> it's based on my last name, DeCandia. And also the year you were born. Yes. Clever. So, you Clever. know, millennial credentials. Amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Thank you for Eddie. having me. You're the best. Bye, campers. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, Resident Youth, and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield, and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com, and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Please also find on our website, there are links to our Patreon page where you can be a subscriber, and there are many cool prizes. Thanks, campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood.